service is currently all over the news. Some believe it's an outdated and underused government agency that should be broken up and privatized. Others say it's an important public service that guarantees inexpensive daily mail and parcel delivery. As, the As politicians in the United States debate economic policy responses to the coronavirus pandemic, one point of contention has been the status of the United States Postal Service. The Postal Service is a joke because they're handing out packages. Uh, right now, I see a very Amazon big danger for our country in the form of the Trump administration's interest in privatizing the post office. With discussions ongoing about the possibility of privatization as one option for saving the U.S. Postal Service, one instructive example to consider is Japan, which has had its own contested process of postal privatization since the early 2000s. What is the background for why Japan privatized its post office? And how did it fit into broader government economic policies? Did postal privatization work in Japan? And finally, what can the Japanese experience add to ongoing debates in the United States? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on the history of postal privatization in Japan, I talked with Dr. Patricia McLaughlin, professor of government and Asian studies, a Mitsubishi heavy industries professor in Japanese studies in the Department of Government at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. McLaughlin is the author of The People's Post Office, The History and Politics of the Japanese Postal System, 1871 to 2010, published by Harvard University Asia Center in 2011. I started by asking Dr. McLaughlin to explain the background for Japanese postal privatization in the early 2000s. In the early 2000s, there was a move to privatize the postal system that really reflected, I think, two sets of trends, one political and the other ideological. And on the political side of things, I think you really have to point to the initiatives of Koizumi Junichiro, the prime minister from 2001 to 2006, who had upheld postal privatization as a major career goal, even well before he ascended to the prime ministership. And for him, the postal system really represented all that was wrong with Japanese politics, and that's the state-run postal system, of course. He felt that by reforming the postal system, he would free up the Liberal Democratic Party to embrace more broad reform in the wake of a protracted economic recession in Japan. And on that note, he was really concerned about the fact that the postal system was controlled by a network of tens of thousands of postmasters who'd been mobilized by the LDP to gather the conservative vote behind LDP politicians, particularly in upper house elections. And at their peak, the postmasters were able to collect as many as a million votes. So the organizations of postmasters end up becoming one of the most important vote mobilizational arms of the Liberal Democratic Party and part of the organizational foundations of LDP longevity. And this reflected the legacy of Tanaka Kakue, who was a real fan of the postal system and helped marry the postmasters to the LDP in this broad exchange relationship in the electoral system. So Koizumi thought by privatizing the postal system and turning these public servants into ordinary private actors, he would dilute the cohesion of the postmasters and loosen their electoral stranglehold over the LDP, thereby positioning the LDP to become more reform-oriented. And the second set of reasons was really ideological. 
Koizumi was a neoliberal. He felt that although the postal system had contributed a great deal to economic modernization, Japan was now a mature economy and didn't need to have this broad postal system, particularly the postal saving system, playing such a huge role in the Japanese financial system with the government acting as an intermediary between the post offices and how the, the postal savings funds and postal insurance funds were being dispensed. So for him, it was a two-pronged effort. First of all, it meant political reform, and it also meant changing Japan and changing the way the political economy worked, particularly the financial role of the state in ways that would encourage changes within the broader private financial system. You mentioned that Koizumi was doing this in the early 2000s. And when we talk about government privatization, you know, things like Reaganomics comes to mind or Thatcherism in England. And even in Japan, too, the Japanese National Railway had been privatized just a decade or so earlier. Can we think of Koizumi's privatization of the postal service as continuing in this trend or, or was it something different for him? I think you're exactly right. Koizumi was from this collection of politicians that included Nakasone Yasuhiro and a number of others who were anti-Tanaka Kakue, and they really adhered to that sort of Reagan-Thatcher approach to privatization and deregulation. And interestingly, I'm glad you mentioned the Japan National Railway and NTT, the Telecommunications Corporation, because Koizumi would often trumpet postal privatization as the last frontier of major privatization in Japan. And the fact that he had to do it last, or the postal privatization comes last, really highlights the political stickiness of the institution. Now, you mentioned that for Koizumi, one of the main targets was the postal savings system. But today, the postal savings system is everywhere in Japan. It's one of the largest banks, in fact. So can you talk about how this postal savings system works and why it plays such a large role in Japan? Sure. Um, you're right that the postal savings system, or it now is called Japan Post Bank, is Japan's largest savings bank. And I believe it, it still occupies the position of being, if not the largest financial institution in the world, very close to being the largest as it used to be. To understand why it's so important, I think you have to go back into history. Right after the Meiji Restoration, there was an effort spearheaded by a prominent mid-level bureaucrat named Maejima Hisoka, whom a lot of people will recognize from postage stamps throughout the ages. His view was that the postal services should serve both economic and social functions for an emerging nation not just contributing to communications, which is very important in a modern state, but also for helping it to modernize economically and also to achieve a sense of nationhood and social welfare change. So all of the services of the postal system really reflect that legacy. And for the postal savings system, that's probably the most important of at least the most salient of the three services. This was introduced in 1875, and it's key to understand that postal savings shows up before Japan had a viable network of commercial savings banks. So ordinary Japanese really get their feet wet in savings in the modern sense of the term with their local post office. And it was a very simple system. The Japanese will go to their local post office and within a decade of the Meiji opening, there was a post office in virtually every community throughout Japan. 
So they would go to the post office, they would deposit their savings, they would make eventually just a little bit more interest than they would in the commercial banking system when that system was now viable. And the terms and the convenience of the postal savings system were such that eventually it becomes the most important savings institution for Japanese citizens. What's controversial about the postal savings system is what happens to that money after it enters the postal system. And both the deposits and the premiums from the postal insurance system, which was introduced in 1916, end up being channeled through the what was once known as the Ministry of Post and Telecommunications into a special fund in the Ministry of Finance that after World War II becomes known as the Fiscal Investment and Loan Program. And that's a massive pool of funds that the government has access to for investment in various projects. So those funds before the war are used to fund military expansion, industrial expansion, various types of economic projects. And then after World War II, they become the source of rapid reindustrialization and at the heart of Japan's economic takeoff. So the postal system kind of has a mixed reputation as a result of all of this. For many Japanese, particularly elderly Japanese now, it's beloved. It's service-oriented. It's consumer-friendly. It's convenient. It's more profitable, or at least it used to be before interest rates were liberalized, more profitable than the commercial banks. And then it produces this huge fund of resources that the state can use for its various projects. And for many years, there was very little political oversight on how those funds were used. So in a nutshell, that's what makes it important. And that's what makes it so difficult to uproot from Japanese society. One of the biggest challenges facing the U.S. Postal Service now, of course, is the fact of that they're losing so much money every year. Right. And this has led to new conversations about, well, maybe privatization is one way to save the U.S. Postal Service. Right. And so if we're looking at the history of the Japanese Postal Service and privatization there, are there lessons that we could draw from this? And would we say that privatization worked in the case of the Japanese Postal Service? That's an interesting question. Um, first, yeah, I think you have to unpack the term privatization. It's a little misleading. In 2005, after uh, a lot of political backing and forthing and one of the biggest political conflicts, I think, of post-war Japan, in 2005, October, Koizumi passed a series of bills that quote-unquote privatized the postal system. What was really remarkable about those bills is that they completely reorganized the services. So each service becomes its own discrete company. And there's this holding company called Japan Post Holdings that controls that has investments in each of the service uh, companies. And of course, there are three service organizations, savings, insurance, and then the mail service. What's misleading about that reorganization is that A, mail will never be privatized. The mail service will always remain under government control through government investments in that holding company. It's only the postal savings and insurance companies that were supposed to be privatized, but even their privatization has not unfolded the way it was originally intended by Koizumi and his friends. Under the original bills, the entire postal savings and insurance system was to be privatized, in other words, owned by non-government entities, with a proviso that the government could buy back some shares 
up to a certain low threshold. But because of politics after Koizumi left, the postal system has not been privatized to the extent that it should be. The government still owns 57% of the postal services, and the mail service is still wholly owned by the government. So privatization didn't work as it was supposed to. And the term privatization, again, it bears repeating, is a little misleading in terms of describing what has happened. Whether or not those changes that were introduced all have been successful, I think the record and critics are mixed on that. On the one hand, I think there is a greater effort to strive for reasonable, logical accounting standards in the postal system, to strive to make each service independently profitable rather than having services depend on one another. But that hasn't really occurred, at least my latter point. Mail still loses a great deal of money. It still depends heavily on the fees that customers pay to post offices for their financial services, and even the postal savings and insurance companies are losing money. They're not nearly as profitable as they used to be. And critics, many critics will contend, and if Koizumi were in the room, he'd say, well, the reason that is, is that it's not fully privatized. And the postal system continues to deposit or invest most of its financial proceeds in government bonds rather than in more profitable domestic and international markets. So the short answer to your question is privatization, whatever it means, has not been as successful as it was hoped it would be. Would that suggest then that as there's discussions in the U.S. about privatizing the postal service in the U.S. is maybe one way to, to save it, maybe that's not such a remedy after all? I think that's a good point to make. On the one hand, postal systems around the world have been losing money, and they realize they need to change their business structure and their strategies to expand their services and find ways to become more solvent, more profitable in order to stay afloat in an increasingly competitive and globalized economy. And Japan clearly recognizes that. But on the other hand, and we haven't mentioned this yet, but one of the major critiques of privatization is that it would harm for the mail service the goal of universal service. If private companies own the network of post offices and profit becomes the main standard for their success, they're going to have every incentive to close down post offices in rural areas where they're not making any money. And that's a big concern for any country considering privatization. And it's a good reason to dilute the scope of privatization. So I think the lessons from Japan that were actually learned, I think, before the privatization unfolded, Koizumi thought about this and introduced and agreed to a number of compromises to privatization to ensure so-called universal service, particularly for the mail service. So we really capitulated on that. And I think those are important lessons for countries anywhere to learn. Personally, I don't think privatizing a service is uh, like a mail service is such a good idea. And I think it's often short-sighted from the perspective of the government has no other network of institutions as extensive and far-reaching as a postal network. And that postal network can perform so many essential public services for national government, for local government, that I don't think our political conversation right now has even begun to touch on. 
You mentioned that Japan has this postal saving system. In fact, this is incredibly beloved. Is that something that the U.S. could learn from? Maybe bringing back a postal savings system in the U.S. would be a way to keep the post office running? Well, despite some of my criticisms of how postal privatization has unfolded in Japan and some of the critiques of the postal system in Japan, I think the answer to your question is really yes. The United States used to have a postal saving system. It was abolished in the late 60s, and it never really took off in the United States like it did in many European and Asian countries. But many of the goals of a more traditional, if we can use that word, postal saving system, I think would really address a lot of the problems that the United States is facing right now. Postal saving systems are supposed to appeal to the small-scale saver. Fees are, by definition, low. The returns on your deposits should be competitive. And because of the convenience of the postal network, reintroducing a broader series of financial services, including a modified savings system in the United States, I think would really help rural communities and other underprivileged low-income groups in the United States. This has been bandied about by Senator Gillibrand, I believe, in New York very recently. And it has been an issue that has come and gone over the last few years. And I really hope to see American policymakers think about it very, very carefully and consider the potential of the post office in serving some of the financial needs of the underprivileged. And hopefully, my hope is that the United States can get beyond some of the partisan divisions that have prevented uh, further discussion about this important issue. I'm Tristan Gruno, and this has been Japan on the Record, the podcast where scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Hosted and produced by Tristan Gruno of the Council on East Asian Studies at Yale University. Thank you for listening.